generation God gives strength in loving arms Scatters the proud of the nations In the thoughts of their hearts God takes the powerful from their thrones And lifts up the lowly God fills the hungry will not come if we wait for some other person or some other time. We are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the change that we seek. President Barack Obama. I'm Debo Dykes. And I'm Katherine Young. As we continue our series Born Black, we're honored to have as our featured guest Dr. Corey Wiggins. Dr. Wiggins is the executive director of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored Person, the NAACP, the Mississippi State Conference. His previous experience includes director of the Mississippi Economic Policy Center and senior consultant with the I Think Group, a public health and health policy consulting firm. Dr. Wiggins' academic Degrees include a Bachelor's of Science from Alcorn State University and both a Master's of Science in Public Health with an emphasis in health policy and a Ph.D. in health promotion from the University of Alabama at Birmingham, Alabama. Welcome, Dr. Wiggins. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Dr. Wiggins. We're very, very happy to have you with us today. Now, Dr. Wiggins, I see that you are from Hazelhurst, Mississippi, which is um, close to my hometown. I grew up in Crystal Springs, but I attended Hazelhurst High School. Um, and we know Hazelhurst and Crystal Springs, which is located about 40 miles south of Jackson. Um, just tell us a little bit about growing up in the deep south and in the big old town of Hazelhurst, Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, it's interesting. You know, one of the things I... I, I I guess when I talk and, and share people uh, with my story and some of the work I do, I always tell them that I'm from Hazelhurst, a small town of about 4,000 people, and and I grew up nine miles outside of the town. Um, so I grew up um, in a community of a family, really. So if you if you think about the picturesque sort of vantage point of riding through the rural South or riding through the country. And you're going down a road and you're, you know, just seeing houses, families. Uh, and where I grew up, if you come down the road about nine miles outside of town, uh, you will. My grandparents' house uh, where they live is is on the one side of the road. Across the street is my great aunt's house, my granddad's sister. Next, de- next door is a house I grew up in with my, my family, my mom and dad and two brothers. I'm the oldest of, of three boys myself. Uh, next to my parents' house is the family church, uh, and now across the street, right next to the church, uh, is my youngest brother's home. Uh, and so I grew up in that space. I grew up where where I spent most of my time with my my grandparents, my parents, my brothers, um, and just you know, I, I, I say that I had the best of both worlds of having a family who loved me. Uh, uh, who did everything they tried to do to make sure we have had the things we needed 
Uh, and at the same time, um, just in a family and a community that really encourage it, uh, provide a lot of encouragement to, 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 to go do whatever it is I needed or wanted to do in life. It's when you mentioned that the church was also uh, part of the neighborhood, so to speak, uh, I wanted to immediately say, okay, you've got to have an aunt or an uncle, a brother or a sister, a cousin has to be one of the preachers at that church. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I grew up, uh, I grew up uh, Methodist, CME. Mm -hmm. uh, and as you know, you know, Methodist uh, uh, denomination, our, our ministers, our pastors uh, sort of rotate uh, around. But one of the interesting things about it, and I think a lot of it sort of connects to who I am as a person, uh, is I, 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 so my great grandfather uh, was, and him and some other families actually were sharecroppers in this community. Mm. And in about 1930, mid 1930s, my uh, my well, probably early 90s, it was a little bit before the end on the church. But the the families in the community decided to purchase this church, hmm. and so they bought this church. And so on the headstone of the church, or the cornerstone of the church, uh, like my great grandfather, other families, about eight other families who were in the community helped sort of found this church that oh. they purchased. And then in about 1930, mid-1930s, the families who helped to purchase the church um, started to purchase the land in which they used to share crop oh, wow. in our community. And and so my great-grandfather actually ended up purchasing all of the land around the church. And our family land actually landlocks the church property. And so in about the mid-1930s, my great-grandfather purchased about 150 acres uh, in Kapai County, uh, up and down this road. Other African-American families purchased uh, land there. And to this day, uh, my, uh, my parents, my boys, actually, uh, we still own the land. Uh, my, on the weekends, we go out to it, we play, we hunt, we fish, we run around, do all the things that we, you expect folks to do from the country. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I always kind of use that in the context of of like this initial sort of group of, of collective action mm -hmm. of a group of families saying, look, hey, we're going to purchase this church. And then the families working together and purchasing land around and up and down the street uh, in which many of the families are still living on today um, that we grew up with. So, uh, but Go ahead. I, I, well, I wanted to know, what was it like going to church uh, on that uh, property right there? Uh, practically just step out your front door, and it seems like you're right there next to the church. Yes. Were there, was there a lot of church going? Did you have, like, revivals? and? Yeah. So we, uh, our church was a small country church. I mean, the church is, no, like, literally, I walked out the door. Walked up the hill about fifty miles, about fifty yards, and was in church. Oh my! And so I was kind of uh, kidding, but obviously it was pretty close to being true. Yeah, no, it was. It was yeah, the, the church set on the church sits on top of a hill. It was about fifty yards from my parents' house. Uh, as a kid growing up, um, uh, probably I think when I was in high school, we built a new church, and so the church it, it, it was interesting. So growing up early, like in elementary school. Uh, we had church like on second and fourth Sundays, Sunday school every Sunday because it's a small church. 
Uh, we had revivals where all the area churches would come to our church. We'd go visit them. Uh, all denominations um, who were all visiting. Because while we might have been Methodist in our community, all of our community was a community. And everybody fellowshiped with each other, regardless mm-hmm. of denomination. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I can remember even as a kid uh, sitting on the on the front pew uh, of the church. Um, actually, I can remember sitting on on the pew where the stewards or deacons mm-hmm. uh, would be sitting in the church, sitting with my granddad and my dad, uh, looking with my brothers, looking at my grandmother on the other side of the church with the other mothers of the church, <laughs> my mom doing stuff in the church. Uh, and I can remember like folks doing devotion, but they always had this memory of uh, there was these songs that people would sing, and certain songs it was this cadence of clapping and stumping your feet. And the church, the old church, had a wood floor, and 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 doing revivals and times like that where people were really getting into the songs. And I just remember as a kid, like saying to myself like this floor is going to fall in because <laughs> they this this wood floor is rocking um but and i and i and i say that though because i mean i think part of and i know we'll talk about this but so much of like who i am and what i do actually comes from like early experiences that i had uh with family um both family that I'm related to by blood or, or family that we're really related to in spirit and in love, uh, who really poured a lot into me, who poured a lot into all of the kids in our community, all the people in our community. They really sort of really, really uh, framed really the why in terms of what I do. Mm-hmm. Dr. Wiggins, growing up in Hazelhurst and, and how we look at under performing underfunded uh, school districts. And of course, I love my alma mater. I love Hazelhurst High School. Yeah. How was that uh, growing up um, and going to school at Hazelhurst? And, and oftentimes we see the underperforming schools or underfunded schools. And we think about how disproportionate that you know those school districts are compared to other school districts um, and how the community as a whole um, brings and holds the glue and brings those schools together and, and produce uh, people like you and I. You know that that's a it's an interesting question in in the way that you frame it in the context of being in a space or or a school district where you know that the school is not getting the resources that they deserve, right? Right. But then you have the richness of a community of people, and and to some extent. The way that I kind of think about our work and what we do is, is that you could take a deficit-based approach or an asset-based approach, and in, and I tend to lean towards an asset-based approach. And so, uh, when you think about the richness of the people and the people who live in the community, uh, when I think about the numbers of, of physicians, doctors, lawyers, but also the number of just good people who are just trying to to support and their families to to have an impact on where they are that you came across them will come across them each and every day uh one of the things i think at least for me personally that helped to offset maybe structural and institutional challenges the school was facing is um 
there was a very strong interest in my family experience around education mm-hmm. and realizing that education wasn't just the experience that you got in the classroom, but education ex- it, it consisted of, uh, of all of the extracurricular and ancillary things you do. So one of my aunts um, taught um, my dad's sister. Uh, he's the youngest of three, actually. Uh, she taught uh, reading at a junior college, at Heinz, Heinz and Utica Junior College. Mm-hmm. And she would bring books home for me in middle school, junior high, and have me to read them and have me to write reports to her. Um, oh, and wow. I didn't have much choice in it uh, <laughs> about, you know, whether I did it or not. Uh, so so early on, so for, for me, early on, uh, I got introduced to, like, the wonders of reading. And I say the wonders because the mm-hmm. other side of it is, is that growing up in a rural community, uh, uh, exposure uh, and what you're exposed to and how you expose to things, it can sometimes be limited. But I was taught early on that that while I may not be able to physically access certain things, mm-hmm. there's nothing keeping me from mentally accessing right. other experiences and being exposed to other things. And so reading was my way of doing it. Uh, I, 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 I sort of, I've, and you'll find, I, I, I've sort of been situated in a lot of different worlds across my life. Uh, so in high school, I was a, a somebody who loved to read, was really intent and keen on my academics. At the same time, I played high school football, and coming out of high school, I had the opportunity to choose whether or not I wanted to take athletic scholarships to play football in college, or if I wanted to do academic scholarships to focus on on academics. So, I, you know, so I just I just think I just had a um, I mean, I have a very blessed upbringing, mm-hmm. um, and and recognizing that, and at the same time, how do I take for what's been given to me and utilizing a way to have a have a broader impact is much bigger than me. Well, this is related to what you've said, and obviously you um, had a wonderful opportunity um, through your either ac- uh, your athletic abilities or your academic abilities, and you you have a master's degree in public health, and you have a doctorate in health promotion. So was there anything specific from your childhood or your early adolescence that prompted you to study public health? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think so early on, you know, at one point in time, I can remember, like, there there's probably been two other things I wanted to be, like, career-wise, right? So I think probably in about, like, ninth grade, for some reason or other, I wanted to be, no, I know why. I wanted to be an engineer. Hmm. I wanted to be a civic engineer in about ninth grade. And, 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 I, I, you know, I, I mean, honestly, I, at ninth grade, I was like, I was thinking about college. I was thinking about college because my parents had me thinking about college. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and, and I say that because then I can remember ninth grade thinking about like where I would go to engineering school at. Um, and um, and I wanted to be sort of lean into being a civic engineer because I enjoy art and drawing and scales and all this stuff. I was like, okay, engineering could be architect or engineering could be a space to pull it together. Uh, and then after that, getting really involved in sports and enjoying sports and like I would love to like have something involved in sports but it wasn't ever this thing about becoming a professional you know athlete mm-hmm. or being professional sports mm-hmm. and so I was like oh, it would be really cool to be like a a sports medicine doctor or an orthopedic surgeon oh. 
Um, and so, because I, I figured like the dream job at the time would be like the the, the team doctor for a professional football franchise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and so that was my goal, right? That was the thing I did. So like after my junior year in high school, I ended up doing a summer science program at Tougaloo College, uh, a, a small liberal arts university here in Mississippi, HBCU but decided to go back for my senior in high school to finish playing football, did that, was going through the recruiting process and other things, uh, figuring out where I want to go to school, considering a lot of different schools. And I kept like, I wanted to be a biology major. I enjoyed science. Uh, I get into college. My first year, I went to Alcorn State University on a football scholarship. Uh, That first year, Played in a couple games as a freshman. Um, I also was having like a couple like health issues, and I remember getting a C in honors English, and my whole life just fell apart. Oh, I feel no. like as a freshman because I'm like I don't get C's. Oh no. Um, um, and so I went through this really kind of process of like, do I really want to play football? Do I want really want to do this? What's important to me, and all that. And I, I, I remember, and I talk about this, and it, it's connected to this. So I remember this moment, um, you know, freshman year, trying to decide what I want to do. I have this conversation with my dad one evening, and I break down crying, talking to him on the phone about, like, because part of it is, it's like, you know, you're it's in college, but all my life I had played sports. It was a big commitment. It was a thing that was important to me. Uh, and this this back and forth about giving it up, and I'm crying and kind of talking to my dad about it. And my dad just stopped me and said, look, we're going to pray about it. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in my dorm room on the phone with my dad, and we praying. And part of the prayer sort of ended in a way of, I can't remember exactly what he said, but was really ending in this, in this space of like, all right, we've prayed about it. We're going to set it aside, right? Like, we've we, we, we done our work. Still think about, but we've done that work. And at some point in time, realizations like, look, I don't want to play football. I want to focus on academics. I still want to be involved in medicine, be involved in that way. I went to my went to the university and was just like, look, I'm, I want to drop my athletic scholarship. Would you accept my academic scholarship that you originally gave me? Uh, the university, the dean at the time was like, like, no, we want to keep you as a student. And and the rest of my time there, I was in school, biology major. Every summer I would go to a different university and do like a summer science research medicine kind of pre-professional training. So one summer I went to Vanderbilt, two summers I went to the University of Rochester. Now after graduation, I went to the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Uh, and along the way, I don't know why, I got this crazy idea that I wanted to do an MD-PhD. <laughs> and I wanted to do a PhD in immunology research because I wanted to like run a hospital and figure out a way to try to cure cancer. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> that's what I, so yeah, wonderful. like I, I don't, I don't know what I was thinking about. Uh, no, this <laughs> is great. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, but that's what that's where I was, and so uh, at the end of undergrad, getting ready to try to apply to med school, take all the tests. I kind of realized that, like, maybe I don't want to do laboratory research, but I want to do systems change work. So I thought about doing, like, a MD-MBA. Then I started looking at grad schools, 
for some reason, I kind of got into this idea of public health and health policy. And what really shifted for me is, is after a year out of college, I had been doing research at UMC. Mm-hmm. And I still wanted to do this, the, the combined degree. The medical school in Mississippi didn't have a dual program in like MBA and or health policy and, and MD. And uh, Dr. Robert Hester, who was a professor at uh, UMC at the time, suggested, well, why not just go and get the master's and then try to come back to try for med school? And so I decided to do that. And prior to right the summer before I started graduate school, I did a fellowship through the Kaiser Family Foundation called the Barbara Jordan's Health Policy Scholar Program, where they placed me in a U.S. Senate office doing health policy. And at that moment, I said, I do not want to be a physician. I want to focus on health policy. Uh, And my rationale for it at the time was, as a physician, I could see and impact one patient at a time. But through policy, you can impact thousands of millions of people at one time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that started my trek. So so health policy became my way of how do I think, look at systems, processes, institutions, and policies to create more conditions for people to have access to what they need to live, uh, to have a, 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 a healthy life. And and. My thinking about this has evolved over the course of it, because even when I went on to, to do my PhD, I always sort of took this intersection around around health equity, health disparities, sociology, and the context of structure, structures and institutions, and say, how can we make the experiences of people, people living in communities better? And so my dissertation, even though it was health promotion, what it did was looked at where people live by zip code, mm-hmm. looking at factors like access to green space, ex- levels of crime, socioeconomic status, and what was the relationship to community environmental level factors to the likelihood of you having or getting or having high blood pressure. Wow. And the connection, what I was making is saying that if we create healthy spaces and quality of life for people, then people will be healthier. Um, and so that that is that is really how this sort of, that's how sort of the academic space involved for me, uh, which really translated all over to me on the practical side of, of the work that I, and really of course, uh, really across the course of my career. It's amazing how our paths sometimes um, take on a different uh, look versus what we originally thought. Um, and, and your your path and passion um, for public health definitely uh, shows that that you're a, all your life you were geared towards service, um, a person of service. And so that leads me into our next question: Your work at the NAACP. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, um, you know, if 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 somebody would, would you know have said to me at some point in time like you're going to be doing this work at the NACP, uh, that just wouldn't have been something on my radar. Um, even and I completely agree. Even when I think about my my experiences across my sort of my academic experiences. The approach I've taken with them has very been very similar to my approach I've taken with career, 
and what it has been is is really being open to the possibilities and for me being open to the possibilities is is that there are core there are core values that i feel about work is i want to have impact um but I, I but I feel like I have the agency and power to decide how I define impact, and how I define impact today may be different um, around how I define impact tomorrow for me personally and where I work and how I work, and that's okay for me. Um, the other thing is is I feel like I've been I've been blessed with certain skill sets and talents, my my opportunities around education gives me certain skill sets and talents and even my my education around like my across my experiences across life gives me my own sort of vantage point and my thought process has always been how do i take that at any point in time and use it in a way to be effective Mm -hmm. again where i may be effective today uh, can be different about where i may be effective tomorrow and I say that because, like, I've done a lot of stuff career-wise. Career-wise, so one of my, I mean, in un, I mean, grad school, I, I, I did some work with a research study looking at um, uh, differences in stroke outcomes. When I, I actually lived in Alabama during that time, uh, in I guess uh, 2008, my wife and I uh, got married. I moved back to Mississippi. She was in dental school at the time, and I was actually finishing up my PhD. Uh, she's in dental school in Mississippi. Um, and I started working in Mississippi State Legislature as a policy advisor here. Mm-hmm. And that was on the time in 2008. So that was on the time where President Obama just became elected. Uh, we were coming, sort of trying to recover uh, economically. They had the stimulus package, real name, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. And so I ended up advising the state legislature on the implementation and the budget implications of the, of our, uh, the stimulus package in Mississippi. And so I was there for about two years, left that, did consulting for a while. While I was doing consulting, I finished also finishing a PhD. I became a faculty member at Jackson State University, uh, where I taught in the public health program, uh, taught health policy. Uh, from there, I transitioned from there and became... Uh, executive director for the Hope Policy Institute. Hope Policy Institute is part of a family of development companies that include Hope Credit Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hope Enterprise Corporation was a community development financial institution and the Policy Institute. And we work in economically distressed communities and areas across Mississippi, Louisiana, Tennessee, uh, now Alabama. Uh, and did that for, for two or three years, for about three years or so. And had an opportunity to make a transition to NAACP. Well, throughout this time, I've been volunteering with NAACP since about 2010. I served as a state health chair for NAACP. uh, And the uh, now national president and CEO for the the national NAACP was the state conference president for Mississippi. And in his transition to national, I transitioned to provide some leadership at the state conference. And so that's kind of how I got there. Um, um, the connection for me from academic training to where I'm at and across my, my sort of experiences is really in this idea of, again, going upstream to address health issues by focusing on determinants of health. Things like 
poverty, income, access to housing, like all of these things collectively influence health and health outcomes. And, you know, it's that whole sort of adage about, you know, uh, that people talk about, you know, the baby coming down the stream and you have the person who see the babies and keep, keep pulling the babies out, out the stream. Uh, and then one person's like, you know, takes up walking upstream. It's like kind of where you're going. It's like, well, I'm going to stop the person who's putting the babies in the streams. Right. Uh, and that's kind of how I, I've, I've connected like my training academically to where I am now is, is that I'm trying to continuously move upstream to these root issues that are impacting and affecting communities, particularly communities of color and African American community. That, that that ends up with worse health outcomes. But I think when you get to it, you'll find that some of these issues that we have, not only health outcomes, are connected to why you may see issues around the ability to uh, uh, build wealth, issues around access to, to education or public education and, and, and outcomes, uh, higher levels of unemployment. Like, they come from some root, root stuff and my work at NACP is, is, is really trying to figure out how do we lean into addressing both these root issues that result and manifest themselves in inequities, um, while at the same time figuring out how do we respond to the immediate needs of families and communities. So that's kind of how I kind of got to the space of doing uh, kind of what I do and even some of the frame, how I, how, at least how I internalize or, or process it. What do you see are some of your greatest challenges as executive director? Because I see you, uh, you know, being the executive director and, and even within NACP, this is a multifaceted and, uh, you know, a multitude of an approach to how you. So yeah. there are, I'm pretty sure, many challenges. But what do you see as your greatest? Yeah. Um well, I mean, so what I would say is, is just one, you know, just a little bit about NACP. I mean, NACP is an organization uh, that is takes a bottom-up approach to organizing in communities. Um, we have local branches across the U.S., across Mississippi. These local branches feed into state area conferences where I serve as executive director, which then in turn feeds into um, uh, the national NAACP. And so what that gives us is, you know, member volunteers across the country, member volunteers in Mississippi who are showing up each and every day in their communities and doing what they do because it's the right thing to do. Uh, and I think when I think about organizationally challenges or when I think about challenges that exist in, in our space that we work in is Mm. So I think there's this, it's, it's a couple, but I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll focus on one. Um, we have a lot of people who experience prejudice, discrimination on a day-to-day basis. And that in itself can, 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 it's tiresome. It's heavy. And for those same folks who have these experiences to to show up each and every day, not just on the behalf of their individual experiences, 
but also on the behalf of the collective experiences to try to make things better can be a lot. And I think the challenge that I have, and I think that other organizations have is, is being intentional about people and our member volunteers and even and folks who are engaged in this work of practicing self-care. And I say that because we have to continuously replenish uh, the folks, not only just within us as an organization, but people in, in, in communities who are active, mobilized, and engaged on issues around civil rights, on issues around voting rights, on issues around doing what's right. And I think for me, my challenge is 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 the same. Like like how do you approach the space that we're in with sustainable leadership? Um, what does it mean to be prepared to be sustained in the work that we do for the long haul? Because the unfortunate reality is is that that while we have made progress, um, there's still a lot of more work to do. And it's going to require a lot of folks to be engaged in the work. Uh, and so that's, that's I mean, I think to some extent that's an organizational challenge. I mean, I think that's a personal challenge uh, for me in, in how you manage uh, and go through and think about sustaining leadership. And when I say sustainable leadership, I'm just talking about all the experiences that I have as a as an African-American man raising, you know, three black boys, uh, have a family experiencing what's going on in our country, in our state um, personally. And then at the same time, how do we do this to organizationally to try to make things better uh, for for everybody, too? I can't imagine the amount of energy that it takes to. Um, each and every day to put one foot in front of the other when you're constantly faced with um, levels of uh, oppression and rejection and to sustain oneself and to maintain an element of hope that things will get better. And uh, I just can't imagine how much effort that yeah. must take facing that day in and day out for for a lifetime for, for so many. Um, on another topic uh, that kind of relates back to in, uh, your work with the NAACP, um, on Sunday, June 28th, um, 2020, the Mississippi State Legislature passed a bill to remove the Confederate emblem from the Mississippi State flag in this historic refer referendum um, on the only remaining state flag to feature the Confederate insignia. Now, um, that was that made national news. It I saw it in the New York Times. I saw it in the Atlantic. Um, I saw it on MSNBC, CBS. It was it was national news. It was huge. It was everywhere. And um, for our listening audience, the vote uh, in the House was ninety one to twenty three. And in the state senate, the vote was 37 to 14. So that was such a big um, ordeal. It was a big, big event. So many lives um, fought this 
but didn't live to see it happen. So as an executive director uh, of the NAACP, what does this mean uh, for people, especially black, black people in the state of Mississippi who've worked so hard? Yeah, um, you know, and the, the 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 moment the vote happened, the the first thing that I thought about was um, so many people who had toiled and worked on and fought for this issue, among a number of issues, for so long. Uh, when I thought about in the '80s, you know, you had like, you know, legislation. Uh, mm-hmm. That was put forth by uh, the state conference NAACP president at that time, Aaron Henry, right. to remove the flag that was that was ignored year after year. Uh, Henry Kirksey uh, was another one uh, who who always who sort of put forth and talked about the flag and the need for the flag. Mm-hmm. Senator Kirksey. Uh, when I think about in the early mid two thousands, when you had uh, groups of of ministers and community advocates who would gather uh, on the footsteps of the governor's mansion to uh, pray and to uh, uh, sort of essentially hold prayer vigils in, in terms of removing the flag wow. and to be at this moment. And that's not even talking about right, the, the terroristic history of how the flag has been used to 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 to, to flame hate, to, to torture and terrorize uh, the black community, uh, you know, across the U.S., across the South, and in Mississippi, and so I, I went there first and was just thankful for the sacrifices, both known and unknown, that mm-hmm. so many folks have made uh, in the work that they've done and continue to do. Um, and I think the the uh, at the same time. The overachiever in me, right, is <laughs> um, um, is went to this this next space of of that uh, right. The importance of removing symbols um, cannot be downplayed, particularly when you think about a symbol, the uh, Confederate emblem on the flag that's been used in so many other ways to harm and inflame, hate, and torture uh, the communities. And then, at the same time, as I thought about it, I said, in these very halls, and I had a chance to go by the Capitol today, oh, wow. is while we, we, we had to vote for to remove the flag, and then I know the next day there were debates around funding for public schools or funding for our university systems Hmm. and all these other decisions that had to be made after that. And what we've seen is, is that since, you know, we removed the vote from the flag and removed the flag, the, the, the policies and decisions that have been made after that, uh, is more reflective as if the flag was still standing. Oh, I was afraid you would say that. Oh. And 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 I said it, and I say that because it's 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 this there's this this there's this thing about about and is there's different philosophies and approaches around organizing and work around racial justice work, and one 
uh, is really around this frame of changing hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. uh, there's this other sort of practical aspect of it. There's a combination of both. Uh, and I think the thing is, is that is that while the work to change hearts and minds around equity and racism is work that has to continue, uh, yes. and it doesn't end with the removal of the flag, because if anything, we are, are constantly, consistently reminded of the hearts and minds that have not changed, because mm -hmm. the policies and the decisions that are being made by. Uh, our elected officials are detrimental to our communities and communities of color and African American community. Um, and so it's one of those things where 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 you take time to appreciate the moment, mm -hmm. uh, appreciate all of the hard work that so many people uh, did leading up to that. But this, but I also know that all of the folks who did that work also did work to ensure that we have a, we making sure that African American communities aren't over police. Making sure that uh, the public schools in our communities have the resources they need. Making sure that when we talk about economic development, uh, we're not just talking about it in a context where only a few benefit, but all Mississippians benefit. Uh, when we look at, and, and now it's particularly when we look at the response to COVID, that we have a, a response that is that includes an equity component to make sure that we're addressing the issues and how they're manifesting themselves in the African American community uh, as we look at how this thing is playing out across the state. So, so I think it was a, it was a historic moment. It was a moment of time that I will always remember, um, and I will also remember that moment as a time of a renewed commitment of the work that we still uh, have to do. Yeah, the um, hope and the somewhat relief that. Uh, people, for example, like me, experienced and breathing a sigh of relief and listening to the language, new, there's a new Mississippi, um, and then to all of a sudden become aware of the fact that uh, actually the um, removal of the um, Confederate emblem from the state flag, maybe those who elected or, or who voted to remove it uh, maybe the motive was something else other than that of uh, removing something that was oppressive and incited violence um, in hopes that things would be better and would be renewed. Uh, maybe there was something else going on behind the scenes that most of us in the public world aren't aware of um, that would cause these uh elected officials to vote to remove it, maybe their voting to remove it wasn't because they have a changed mind and heart, but was motivated by something else, which I don't know that we'll ever know that, but that's what comes to mind for me about that. So obviously what you're saying is that the work is not done. Mm -hmm. I, I absolutely agree that the work is still continues. Um, and I think, um, and I, I think that I think that right now is a unique opportunity that we all have right now at this moment in time, uh, not just only in Mississippi, but I think across the country. When you look at um, the protests and rallies to police violence that has happened across this country, you look at the protests to police violence in communities or own communities that's happened in Mississippi. Uh, when you look at the recent flag vote, when you look at all these issues and, and even in terms of the protests and rallies, 
is not just this issue of uh, police violence. It is a culmination of things uh, that communities of color and African American communities, specifically black communities, have been experiencing uh, that is being lifted up. Um, and I think that it is, you know, it, it, I would say it reminds me, but I guess I, I wasn't there to experience, but I'm often sort of talking with my elders and, and reading uh, when you look at in the early 60s, the movement work around leading up to and after the murder of Emmett Till. Mm-hmm. And I think that moment serves as a reflective time to both learn and understand the movement work that happened at that point. Right. Because if you think about it from there, from the 60s to the now, uh, you have this burst of activity and work uh, and things that happen, and shifts and changes. Uh, then there's been this constant and consistent struggle. Uh, and we have reached a point where where not only are, are I mean, you got to reach a point where you have the media who is turned and who is paying attention to what, uh, uh, you know, the black community, black Mississippians and allies are saying about these injustices. Right. Uh, and we also have to make sure that as we, 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 we also have to be intentional so that we're not only talking about the issues that we are addressing. And I say we as a collective society, sure. uh, that as our lawmakers address issues around the flag, uh, that they're also beginning to to do work around the institutional and structural uh, uh, racism and racism and violence and and institutional and structural and systemic issues that limit opportunity for Black folks living in Mississippi. Like mm-hmm. we have to undo that, uh, and that's where that's where the work and that's where we need to make sure we focus our attention on as well. Dr. Wiggins, I, I just want to, um, you know, talk about briefly about um, since the brutal murder of George Floyd, there continues to be peaceful protests, like you said, across the country and throughout the state of Mississippi. We've seen many peaceful protests uh, calling for justice, um, and they have been made up of diverse groups of people. And still there are outbursts of unmitigated hatred coming from white people. Mm-hmm. Um, some running for public office, some already in office. Specifically, I speak about um, a Facebook post, an article in the Mississippi Free Press that talks about Clayton Howard Hinton, a white business owner who ran for District 4 supervisor in southeast Mississippi as a Democrat in 2015 and then as a Republican in 2019, who recently said, and I quote on his Facebook page, why are we allowing these thugs to do such damage to our cities. What's wrong with our country? This is a simple fix. Shoot these thugs and move on. We are not to allow this in America. What do you say in response to such hatred and frightening statements, uh, especially from our elected officials? Look, you know, um, you know, I, I, I wish we could say that those comments are the worst of the comments that we've seen that's gone public. Uh, when they're not, uh, I think down in Jones County, Mississippi, there was a uh, election commissioner uh, who made the statement that um, the the blacks are doing voter registration, and and we Americans or something and stuff need to watch out or something like that. Refer it as if you know, being a uh, uh, 
black person in Mississippi, you're not American. Uh, up in Columbus, Mississippi, uh, a, a county supervisor um, uh, made comments uh, equating uh, around blacks being dependent and bound on slavery. And uh, I mean, the, 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 the foolishness uh, of what folks are saying right now is, is that. Um, and what do we make of it? I mean, I think what we make of it is, is that hate and bigotry is, is still here. Um, and what can I do or what can we do? Um, you know, I think, you know, folks, different ways, you get mad, you get angry. Uh, the, 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 the other thing about this though is, is in terms of the emotional response to it is, is that what's unfortunate is, is that you're bombarded and hear and get so many of these messages that you become numb to it, oh. right? That yeah. when somebody say this or say that or, or something that is 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 hate filled or or, or 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 something some type of sort of bigoted statement uh, based upon uh, on black people is that when you hear you kind of like oh okay all right that's another one. like check like like that's the unfortunate reality of of of, of that. Uh, now, from a practical standpoint. What I say is, is this: we got to organize in our communities, uh, and what that means is, is that all of that 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 stuff that people is putting out and 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 putting on on out and on our communities on people is is that we look at it and also understand that this is also a visceral response of some folks who feel as if they are losing power. Oh yes. Right, because the main the main thing about this conversation that 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 I think that we can that can't get lost in here is is that is that some people don't want to call it, but there's a conversation about power, mm-hmm. and and it can be framed in the context of power in the context of race. It can be con- framed in this context of power uh, in the in the in the framing around. Um, uh, economic status, the have and have nots, the rich and the poor, it can be framed in the context of a gender e- equity. Mm-hmm. But when we're, but we're, what we're talking about right now is, is this conversation about around power and a confluence of race. Well, you have some folks who feel that that the expansion or the uh, uh, inclusion the the involvement or engagement of black people in systems and institutions across this state means that they lose in something you know and go ahead go ahead go ahead ahead, ahead, ahead. it's just so perplexing um i don't know and don't understand how people can hate so deeply it seems to me that the energy that is required to hate that much would be so disruptive to one's life that there's hardly life to be had at all mm-hmm. so in in my heart really breaks for the people that bear this hate 
that live and thrive, their heart beats with this hate. And I cannot imagine how exhausting that is. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I'm, I'm with you. I can't imagine myself personally how, how exhausting it is because, I mean, look, I mean, um, if you if you if you think about it, um, if you wake up on your normal day, get out and go and do what you got to do to try to support your family, engage, have your life and live your life. Uh, with all of the things that you come across in the course of the day combined with responsibilities and as this stuff add up and add up, that in itself is a lot um, to manage through today in society. Uh, and then to add on the, like, this weight of, it's like, all right, now I'm going to take all this and add this energy of like, like I hate this 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 group of people. Uh, and my reason for hating is because of the color of their skin. That's just um, nuts. Like, like, yeah. It, it, it doesn't make sense mm-hmm. uh, but the unfortunate reality of it is that it's true yes and yes. so so given that right given that we know that what mm-hmm. becomes what is what is next um, and I think there's a frame what I think is what's next is is that is that people living wherever they are uh, with whatever they have, with with whatever they got to be intentional in tearing down uh, hate-filled rhetoric, hate-filled actions, um, uh, or ignorance in a way to make things better. And it looks a lot of different ways to a lot of folks. So for some people, it may be... uh, when you sit down to dinner with your family and there are, are things that are being taught that is filled with, with bigotry and, and just uh, and really this hate oriented hate feel like being able to have the courage in, within a conversation with your with your parents or your or your sister or your brother and say look that's not right right or for some it may look like um, when you in, when you are a lawmaker and as you're being able to try to make uh, laws in a way that are intentional about equity. If you're a business owner, uh, when you start to look at if you have vendors and people that you contract with, but look, you know, are you being equitable in that process? Are you creating opportunities for other small businesses, minority and women-owned businesses, to make money? If you're if you are a loan officer, or if you're a president of the bank, do you do a real good job of making sure you make sure that capital is accessible to 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 minority-owned businesses or in my case um thinking about the the work at the naacp of supporting and working with our volunteers across the state of mississippi uh of doing what we can where we are and being supportive of our folks so i think there's all i, I just and i said it because because i always get this question asked from people it's like what is it that I, what i can do given like all these things are so big and I just, and I, my, my response to it while standard for me is, is, is very intentional. Like, well, do what you can, where you are, with what you have, uh, and make it smaller, make it relevant to where you are and start there. Uh, and I promise you, wherever you start, you're going to find more work than you can handle. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's such a 
pivotal time, I think, that we are in right now in a time of change, um, one that has been um, fuming and steaming. What would you say to anyone who thinks their vote doesn't count? Because we, we're, this is the time to amplify our voices like never before. And how can we rally together to bring the change, the equity that people of color, our foreparents, have been fighting for for over 400 years? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the thing is this, you know, we you we look each year and that's like, and this is in the context of Mississippi and different places different. We have elections every year in Mississippi. Um, so this year we have Supreme Court races, federal races both House and Senate races and election commissioner races. And also uh, some counties or places will elect school board members. Uh, next year, you have municipal elections. Uh, so we have, a, and the, uh, the, in 20, uh, last year, we had a lot of our statewide races and state races. So we have elections every year in Mississippi. So there's an, always an opportunity to be part of the process. There's always an opportunity to make sure your voice is heard. And so I think as we have people who are rallying around the issues and what matters to communities, uh, I think an opportunity for us to be in people collectively, to be to be part of the change, to be part of the process, is to vote. Have a say. And look, vote in a context of what matters to you and where you are. So, for example, um, if you're having issues in your criminal justice system, in your community, you have an opportunity to change that when you go and vote for your district attorney or vote for your county sheriff. Um, you have an ch- uh, opportunity to change that when you go vote for your alderman or your uh, mayor who appoints a police chief in your town or community. So I think that the, the opportunity to vote provides one touch point for you to have a say in your process, but it's not the only one. Uh, and the reason I say that is, is that so often we run, we, we do these big pushes across our communities that say, get out and vote. Mm-hmm. But voting is one touch point because once we vote, then we have to hold those folks we elected accountable. Accountable, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. exactly. Right? So, so that's the that's the, the the if I think about like where we are, and, and in Mississippi we have one of the highest percentage of African Americans, uh, and the highest percentage of African Americans that are registered to vote, and so we have to do a, a better job around getting more people to participate regularly in voting on a year to year basis. But we've done it; we have done a good job of registering voters. Uh, and there's all kinds of data around voting that we have when we look at that talks about like what we're doing in Mississippi as it relates to voting. Uh, but we have to hold the people that we vote into office accountable. And that's where we also need to make sure we're being intentional and leaning into uh, the work that we're doing. Well, accountability, accountability is something that's lacking uh, in our government today. And I recognize it more than I have ever recognized it in the past. And Mm -hmm. I'm very hopeful that in November of this year that uh, we will have an extraordinary turnout, that people Mm -hmm. will uh, take opportunity to let their voices be heard through that vote. And Mm -hmm. 
that we will restore some level of accountability uh, in our democratic process. And if we don't, we, we will lose it. No question. So uh, as we wrap up, Dr. Wiggins, we, you have three sons, correct? Yes. Yes, I do. I have an 11-year-old, 8-year-old, and 5-year-old. And probably like me, I, I'm a little bit older than you. I have a 25-year-old and a and a 22-year-old daughter and a one-year-old grandson. So we we Listen, work. I've got y'all all beat, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not going to tell, right? Me either. <laughs> you, you work at hard at striking the delicate balance between unconditional love and providing the discipline to your sons, as just as I do to my son and daughter. Will, that they will need to survive in America. We watch them as they take their first step, teach them how to ride their bicycles with our training wheels. We attend their basketball games, football games, extracurricular activities, and tend to their scratches and bruises. We also try to disagree in an effort to mold them when they become teenagers. Do you find it challenging to raise them in a world that has a host of assumptions about who they are and what they are capable of doing? Or is this becoming less of a common concern for you? Uh, well, look, you know, in, in, in talking about my children, I would be remiss that I, I didn't say, like, you know, I got the easy job of being dad. My wife has a hard job of being mom and, and wife because uh, she is in a house full of, of boys and men oh, yeah. uh even even my, my look my dog is a boy <laughs> um my brother-in-law just finished up at uh at um at jackson state university he lives with us oh no uh, oh my <laughs> yeah so so i wouldn't you know i i, I first just have to to, to stop there and pause there <laughs> in that moment and in that space and just you know just just thank her for all that she does for for us and our family um and in her own right right she's a she's a a, a dentist uh, so she goes to work each and every day trying to meet the dental needs of folks uh, in our communities and and do a great job at that um and i think you know as we as as we have talked, me, we both of us has talked about trying to raise our our, our sons. Uh, one of the things that, that I find myself and I say is is that I have um, three boys uh, that I'm trying to raise to be um, three black men, and I'm intentional when I say black men because there's a lot of context that comes with that. There's a lot of there's a lot of context, uh, um, black women and black and black men, but there's a lot of context around blackness uh, and what it means and what it may mean to to folks and people external to you, and to be able to have to teach and work and guide with work with my kids on that. Um, I, the way that I would describe that and the parents and part of with my with my boys and and loving them and even this day and time it's kind of one of those things where um there's this fog that exists if if you think about it like it's equates sort of like driving a car and you're driving a car 
and and I think as a as a young as a man for myself as a young man, I sort of went through life with 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 kids with family people loving on you and all these things, and then you start to experience life and you start to realize the full depth and um, impact of of how race and discrimination and prejudice can influence and impact impact and affect you and when you begin to to begin to understand it, it there's this fog now right that you begin to drive through and you have these your lights on but this fog of racism discrimination and hatred that exists there uh, and it's there because you know it exists you see the fog you still can see but this stuff it still exists uh, and I kind of use that in the context of when I think about my own children where my children at their ages are full of their zeal, their life, their everything that, uh, that you want in a child. And at the same time as their father, I know there's going to be moments and times and experiences in the near future that they're going to start to ask questions and understand and begin to sort of dissect, right? This idea around like how race influences you in a way um, that no one else can sort of explain or describe outside of these experiences that you have and will have as black boys as you transition into black men. And who am I to to talk to my sons or to dim their headlight, right? Or mm-hmm. to, because what they teach you if you're driving, if you go in the fog, you put on your low beams, you can mm-hmm. see under the fog. But but who am I to, to tell my sons to dim their light? I refuse to do that. My parents and grandparents never told me that. Um, and they told me if anything to shine through and shine harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's the, that's the, that's the reality I know that my kids will face. Uh, uh, my oldest, my kids are. My, my kids, I, I'm able to have conversations at age-appropriate levels with them around issues around race because they're around me and my work and my colleagues, and they see it, they hear it. Uh, they get a chance to come to the office that Megar Evers once occupied. They get a chance to come to the building uh, where all this history around civil rights movement happened, ask questions and take tours. So they get exposed to all this stuff. Um but at the same time, these issues or these things that they're going to face in life is going to be real. And I think the thing that I can do as a dad, as a father, uh, is to is to be there to support them, to talk with them, to answer their questions, uh, and instill in them the same thing that that my family and, and church family and community of Hazers instilled in me is that look, you got what you need. God has blessed you with what you need. Put in the work. Do the things that you need to do. Uh, and go forth and as you attach and come up against obstacles as you come up against all these other things uh, you have a family and a group of people who love you and there to support you and that's what I hope and that's what I try to convey and I hope my sons sort of feel it and see it um, that me and my wife both try to convey and instill in our kids because again going back to, to sort of my upbringing is this idea of, of that you know I was fortunate I was blessed uh, all these experiences, understanding that they could have been derailed at any point in time, um, necessarily through no fault of my own. It could have been pulled over the wrong way or or a wrong interaction with a police officer would have ended my life or, or ended my career, uh, which is still feasible, possible today. Even as I, if I leave my house today, that's that's possible and feasible. Um, 
but it's working through that and just to make sure my kids know that that, that we are here our community is here supportive of you and backing of you and i think that's just and i think to some extent that's what any person wants, any human wants to know that um and making sure that my sons know that they have that here and have that at home and the community and the families, uh, the community of men that we try to surround them with to be supportive of them as well. Well, your light definitely shines bright in the fog. I love your metaphors. Um, and Dr. Wiggins, I just, I applaud your efforts and your courage, your clarity, your brilliance and um, it was indeed a pleasure talking with you today, and thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be with us. Uh, well, look, I appreciate y'all. I appreciate the, the invitation to, to share with you today. And um, uh, look, I'll, I'll just say this: look, you know, for folks, if if people are asking what they can do, I always encourage people to join the NAACP. Uh, there is room and space at the table uh, for folks who are trying to volunteer in communities. Uh, I, I encourage you to become a member, uh, or if you if you're and if you're not able uh, to to volunteer your time, uh, I encourage people to support uh, financially to work at the NAACP. You can visit our website uh, NAACPMS.org. Uh, you can find ways to become a member. Uh, or to uh, become a supporter, but but and my last thing I'll say is this: there are folks out here each and every day who's doing social justice work, advocacy work in any space. Uh, check on them and see how they're doing, because it's a stressful time for a lot of folks with COVID and response to these issues. So I, I've been telling folks and sharing with folks: check in on your friends. We're doing social uh, advocacy work, social justice work, and see how they're doing. But again, thank you all. Well, again, if you uh, are interested, and we encourage you to visit uh, the um, Mississippi NAACP website, and uh, Dr. Wiggins, I'm going to repeat again, that is naacpms.org. And Catherine, again, thank you for another informative podcast in our series, Born Black. Well, thank you so much. And, and again, thank you, Dr. Wiggins, for um, giving us this time to just diverse and talk to you. And, uh, and Ms. Dykes for allowing us um, this space in order to um, discuss things. And in my final thought to our audience, in an interview of Fox News, First Lady Michelle Obama said, you know, some folks don't see the impact of their vote on their day-to-day -day lives. If the trains still run, the kids are still going to school, and they still have a job, what difference does one vote really make, right? When you get whole families thinking like that, whole communities, then you start to see how the impact multiplies. So every single person out there needs to ask themselves, do they trust the folks in charge to make the right call, whether it's school boards or state houses or those in Washington. Are my neighborhood's interests being represented or are they being ignored? There are questions we should be asking every year in every election and at every level of government because when a crisis hits, there are no do-overs. Thanks, Catherine. 
And thank you, Dr. Wiggins. No, and thank th- you all. And thank our listening audience. This has been a production of the D.L. Dykes Jr. Foundation, producers of Faith and Reason Seminars and Educational Programming. Additional funding is provided by the Winland Cook Foundation. For home study materials designed to broaden one's awareness, please visit our website at www.faithandreason.org. Children's children evermore.